So this, um, this past year, we've had a lot of conversations surrounding power. Who's in power? What is an appropriate use of it? Who has power? And when we think of power, it's often closely related in our minds to force, is it not? A volcanic eruption is powerful. Dynamite is powerful. God is powerful. Something that expounds energy to shape and exert its will on what's around it. The power of executive orders. The power of authorities. The power of the people. What about us Christians? What about our power? For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Are we not to build in our faith and be bold in our faith and to proclaim the truth of God? Romans teaches us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed Is the church then not to be an agent of transformation, transforming our lives and transforming the lives of those around us? Are we not to be engaging in our culture? Yes, we are. And no, we're not. Today we're going to look at the Apostle Paul to give us some guidance on how we as Christians, those who follow Christ, In this room, those who follow Christ out there. And how we are to properly relate to power. He gives us a warning. And then he offers us some hope of what it means to be human. And finally, he models a response for us. But we'll be looking at uh, one of the several letters that he sent to the church in Corinth. Which we have recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And so if you have a Bible with you, feel free to go ahead and and open up to that spot. We will read of what Paul offers as a challenging viewpoint to integrate into our lives. He wants us to transform our view of boldness to include a priority of brokenness. So in writing to to the Christians at Corinth, And the broader area in the ancient Achaia, he stated, So to keep me from being coming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
How are we doing that, Harvestigator? Criminy. Content with insults. That's the one that gets me. If you say something that, that denigrates my intelligence or, or demeans my experience, we're going to have issues. It's a hard pill to swallow here, Paul. And it's real hard because I'm not always dealing with just insults. I'm dealing with perceived ones as well. Maybe the ones that are not really there. You know what I mean? Many of you know I'm, I'm taking classes at Moody to finally finish getting my degree. One of my classes, I, I finished an assignment on time. And, and I, I submitted it in, and, and I felt good about it. I felt confident about it. I, but I didn't double-check the assignment details. And there was a lot of different components to it, and I missed something. I did the work. I just forgot to include it. And I got some points taken off for it, and I apologized to the professor. I, I took full responsibility for the error that was on my part, and I let him know that I, I did, in fact, complete the work. I just forgot to include it, and I sent him what, what I had, had completed, what I had done to show that I'm not looking to make excuses and, and, and try to convince him that, that this is important to me. The part that bothers me, though, as I did it again. <laughs> same class, same teacher. And this time I didn't even notice the portion of the assignment that, was, that it was saying that needed done. I received a reduced grade for the assignment. It was my fault. I took it like a man, my bad. You know what really gets my goad though? <laughs> A third time, at least in the professor's mind, he, he showed me, you know, what I was missing and what wasn't there, but he was wrong. He was wrong. And I, I, I laid out, I detailed everything in the assignment and, and pointed out that this is what I'm meaning here. This is what I'm thinking here. This is, this portion is why I have this in there. And I laid it all out there. And showed him that this is, this is not the case. So to, to think that for three times I forget something, come on. Come on. But worse than that, to think that I put all this effort and, and, and really put in and, and meticulously followed down to tiny little details and, and to say that I did it wrong. That's a hard pill to swallow. And so I emailed him back, and I was, I was worked up about all this. It was, it was grating on my mind. It was consuming my thoughts, and I'd continually check to see if the professor responded to what I had laid out, but nothing. No response. Silence. I felt cheated. I felt powerless. Do I write a scathing review at the end of, end of the, the, the class? Do I contact the school? Do I reach out to Tony, who, who, who's a professor at Moody, and be like, what are we going to do about this? Mm. 
But despite that steady, calming voice in the back of my mind telling me, it's okay, I've brought you here. I was anything but content. There's this misconception that, that if something's difficult, then God's will is not being done. That if, if things are going the wrong way or, or, or something isn't as it's supposed to be, then God's goodness is being set aside. Truth is, sometimes, sometimes I just want comfort. <laughs> Paul starts this 2 Corinthians letter speaking of God comforting us in our afflictions. And so we look to the Apostle Paul for spiritual maturity on our view of Christian boldness and Christian brokenness. And so with the wide range of history humanity has with power, often with misconceptions and misappropriations, what warning does Paul offer us concerning it? Well, that without a sense of brokenness, we can think too highly of ourselves. That is such a powerful warning that Paul gives us here. Let me say that again, that without a sense of brokenness, we can think too highly of ourselves. Paul had a, a turbulent history with these people in Corinth. He was personally part of their spiritual heritage. He planted the church there. He established and set up some leaders before continuing on his journey and planting churches elsewhere. And he had a few return visits, and there were several letters of correspondence that come back and forth between Paul and the church, of which we have some of those divinely preserved in the Bible as our first and second Corinthians. And there were some fairly heavy discussions between them concerning some very difficult and challenging life situations. And at times, Paul felt as if he was being too harsh. And at times, some of the, the Corinthians, they felt that Paul was not being bold enough. Some people began to even criticize him and call into question viewing him as an apostle. All because Paul didn't have presence when he preached. These folks, they valued a sense of power that causes people to react. And so Paul here, a portion of his retort uh, here in 2 Corinthians, and some of which Paul uses some sarcasm to kind of instruct and teach them. I'm losing my vision. Evidently, my eyes start to dry out, and then I stop being able to see up close. There's good news. His power is perfected in weakness. Thank you, Jesus. But so, he uses sarcasm. He told them that to... Uh, you gladly bear with fools because you're, you're so wise yourself. 
for you take it with honor when someone mocks you and makes, takes offense to you and it points towards your profound wisdom, but I, the apostle, I'm too weak for such confrontations. But as far as credentials go, Paul lists how he's a Hebrew, an Israelite, a descendant of the divine province, a servant of Christ, and in fact, a better one having labored in faith more than most. But he also stated that this kind of thinking, this kind of reasoning is actually foolish. Displaying his pedigree, boasting in what makes him impressive, and even drawing authority based on his great physical, mystical power of him receiving supernatural direct communication from God. Paul did not consider this a sign of apostleship. It's not an indication of spiritual maturity. It's not what Christians should partake in. Rather, he holds up what keeps him humble as to what we should partake in. Namely, our commonality in brokenness. Thomas Reynolds, in his book, Vulnerable Communion, a theology of disability and hospitality, tackles this idea of what it means to be human. Discussing extensively the Imago Dei, that is to be created in the image of God. He stated that if we, we exist in the image of God and if we, we take, need to take great care in how we discuss this topic, because it can be perilous for people with disabilities. If we equate the image of God with some physical or cognitive ability, and we end up discluding and discounting many that don't measure up to what we determine to be normal. In defining in what it means to bear God's image, do we look to our physicality? That is how we stand and speak and talk. No, because God is much more than a physical representation. And so many have, have conversely equated the Imago Dei, our image bearing, to the ability to reason and other cognitive functions as the locale of our image bearing. And that any diminishment in these capabilities is the result of the fall. Yet Jesus clearly disagrees with this. When he was asked about whose sin caused a man to be born blind, in which he replied, no one's. Not his sin, not his parents' sin, not his grandparents' sin, not his, his great, 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 or how many other greats it takes to get all the way back to Adam's sin. No, he was born blind so that the works of God might be shown. In this man's brokenness, the power of God can be on display. No cognitive or physical difference makes anyone less human. John Piper agrees with this when he says that it's not surprising that neither in the rest of the Old Testament nor in the New Testament is there any trace of an abrogation of this ideal state 
or of any partial or complete destruction of the Imago Dei. Now, I would imagine probably many of you view Piper as being smarter and and better able to reason out the truths of Scripture than I can, and certainly better than you can. But do we then think that Piper better represents the image of God because his ability to reason? No. Piper is gifted in that area. You are gifted in another, and I in yet another. But yet we each still have something that we're not good at, that we're not gifted in. We each have something that makes us less than ideal. (laughs) Maybe you need glasses. Does that mean you're less than human? Less than the Imago Dei? We easily say no. We can easily reason that out as, as a nonsensical question because we already know that we share this commonality in brokenness. And Paul is saying that God has designed us to bear his image, but that doesn't mean that we can function without him. We all need accommodations and to view each other as sharing in that same need. Reynolds states that our neediness is also the source of our greatest strength. For our need requires the cooperation of love of others from which derives our ability not only to live, but to flourish. And that Jesus Christ is the icon of the loving God. And as such, he recreates humanity, the new Adam, We might speak of a disabled Christ, one who understands the underlying disability even in his transformed, resurrected body. This helps us to understand the Christological implications of Paul's paradoxical proclamation in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Namely, namely, that the saving power of God is made manifest and perfected in weakness or the lack of ability. So just as Paul identifies with brokenness, his thorn in the flesh, we too need to prioritize our own brokenness in how we relate to one another when confronted with someone, uh, especially on social media or some other online platform who has a, a different take on things than what we do, in no way is speaking the truth the same as denigrating or marking them as, as evil or unloving a spiritually mature practice. It's boasting in having a better or more superior understanding taking Paul's warning to heart about being conceited, we need to check ourselves frequently. If we find ourselves always or or even regularly in confrontation with others about ideas, then it may be that the lack of a thorn is causing us to miss the wisdom of the other person. 
So not only does Paul give us a warning concerning the trajectory of conceitedness, but he looks to convince us of our proper position in relation to true power. That is to be the recipients of grace. To understand grace is to understand our position of ungracefulness. Did you catch that? To understand grace is to understand our position of ungracefulness. Paul describes this thorn as something with prolonged pain or discomfort and was, in his mind, risking his mission to serve God. This harassment or tormenting he describes is like that of being punched in the face. His correlating this with the work of Satan conveys that he viewed this, at least before God's reply, that it was the work of Christ's enemy. I would imagine Paul has some some fear or anxiety about not being able to fulfill his purpose because of this thorn. And so he keeps returning to the same prayer, much like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, for God to remove the pain, to remedy the discomfort, to bring an end to this disruption of ministry. But the answer of that prayer is not what he expected. My grace, mm, my grace is sufficient for you. It is in this reception of grace whereby Paul understands his brokenness is to be an avenue for God's mercy. This, of course, fits in perfectly with Paul's understanding of grace and truth and that they are gifts from God From the very beginning of creation, we are to be in a position of receiving life from our creator. This is what it means to have faith, to have an assurance of what is hoped for and confidence in the unseen. What is more unseen than knowing when your existence is going to come about? No matter what your view is on biology, neo-functionalization, sub-functionalization, or non-functionalization of gene duplication, you did not cause your life to come into existence. You received it as a gift. This is the message of the tree of life of Genesis. For it is offered as a gift. This is what it means to have faith in God to have faith in Christ, to receive from him the gift of restoration, the gift of redemption, the gift of salvation. And this is what ultimately he offers that we need. For it is through his gift of grace that life is found. I do wonder sometimes if grace becomes a Christian buzzword We have a sense of what it means. We know it's what we call Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. But does it evoke from us an emotional response as it should? I was listening to a podcast from the Bible Project in which they were discussing the word grace, and I think I was given an answer to this question. Because I'm often, I've often wondered, too, if, if there's some connection between the words that we use of, of graceful, grace, gracious, and come to find out there is. 
They explained how the etymological root of these words were used to pronounce favor on someone. Specifically, someone like, like a king would give favor or grace to those that he believed performed in a graceful way. The king's actions towards those performing then would be considered gracious. And so the Bible Project purports that that's what happened with Paul's description of the Christian grace received from God is that favor is given towards groups that are not naturally favorable. The most genuine acts of grace are shown towards those who don't deserve it. Grace in this sense is the ability to treat something as beautiful and deserving of favor, even when it's not. For instance, if I was to have my daughter Maya come up here, and, and we would perform together for you a, a ballet, right? For your entertainment. <laughs> I'm sure that you would be impressed and, and, and awestruck with, with her poise and her control and her gracefulness. The the fuate turns and, and the padishahs and, and not to mention the releves. Those are real words, but I have no idea what they mean. My contribution to the dance would, would look more like a, a, a bad karate kid interpretation. But in the end, you would applaud And in your applause, you would give graciousness to the deserving young dancer who gracefully exemplified her skill, but you would also extend to me grace in clapping for a performance as if it was beautiful, (laughs) even though it wouldn't be. This is what it means to be in the reception of God's grace. This is why grace is sufficient for us. For the eternal king extends his favor even to us, the undeserving, the weak, and the broken. This isn't to say that we've romanticized a view of suffering or oppression It isn't to say that we should seek out discomfort and insults to increase God's grace. No. This is when we begin to see the hope of comfort in our affliction. When we wonder, how can I live like this? How can I do these things that you want me to do with all of this going on? Who in their right mind is going to listen to me? I'm a single mom who can't keep her kids out of trouble. I'm a young black man who who is discounted and dismissed. I'm a middle-aged dreamer who hasn't been able to find his stride and struggles to keep a job. I'm an elderly woman whose keen mind is trapped inside a failing and feeble body. I'm a young child whose motor and communication skills keep me separated from other kids. I'm stuck in this wheelchair. I'm legally blind in both eyes. I have a debilitating social anxiety. 
Yes, those may be a part of your story. They may be a part of our story, but God's grace is sufficient for you. Cry out to God with what ails you, but know this, that it's not all on you to make this life work. Trust in the presence of God and be open to the power coming through the community of faith. So in our recognition of grace, that we find hope amid our brokenness. In it, we find that we are not alone and that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is an even bigger deal through the calamity of the cross. Wow, let that really sink in. God with us is an even bigger deal through the calamity of the cross. The eternal and limitless word of God became human to live and experience life just as we have. In addition to that, he suffered as we suffer. He was broken as we break, not concerning sin, but regarding life, emotion, and will. And at the close, he felt alone and destroyed in that God's power is perfected, completed, and brought into full accomplishment because through the weakness of the cross, the power of God's life to resurrect is on full display. Paul gets to this point fully in chapter 13 when he explicitly states that he, Christ, was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. Paul here is trying to get us to understand that the gospel still matters even after we believe. Even after we've been baptized. Even after we've been attending and participating in church for 10, 20, or 40 years, the gospel still matters. And just as we first came to Christ, understanding our need for him, we come to him daily with the same fervent need because we are broken and he is God, and there is no other response than to live by grace through faith. And it is in that position of submission and dependence that God's power is perfected, that God's power is on display. You see this? Of course not, it's a kernel of corn. If you were hungry and I gave this to you, it, it wouldn't do much for you. In fact, it might make you sick because I dropped it on the floor earlier. But it's not very impressive, is it? Up close, it kind of looks like a yellow tooth. But although it appears to be weak in the hands of a farmer, this can literally feed the world. God's power is perfected in weakness. Timothy Keller, in discussing revival and renewal, touches on this dichotomy. He states that revivals and renewals are necessary because the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness. 
We do not ordinarily live as if the gospel is true. Christians often believe in their heads that Jesus accepts me, therefore I, I, I live obediently a good life. But their hearts and their actions functionally, practically, on the principle, I live the good life and I'm obedient, therefore Jesus accepts me. Listen to what he says here. The results of this inversion are smug self-satisfaction when we feel we're living up to the standards or insecurity, anxiety, and self-hatred when we feel that we're failing to measure up. In either case, the results are defensiveness, a critical spirit, racial and cultural ethnocentricity to bolster a sense of righteousness, an allergy to change, and other forms of spiritual deadness, both individually and corporately. He goes on to say that in sharp contrast, the gospel of sheer grace offered to hopeless sinners will humble and comfort all at once. The results are joy and a willingness to admit faults, graciousness to all, and a lack of self-absorption. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Yes, we need to be revived daily to continually trust and embrace the gospel. Understanding our, our commonality and brokenness. Our position in receiving grace. We thrust ourselves headlong into the extravagance of God's paradoxical power that is exerted not through force, but through weakness, through brokenness. The meek truly are the inheritors of the earth. So I ask you these questions, Harvest Decatur. How does the gospel shape your interactions with your coworkers? How does the gospel shape your time when you're alone? What effect does the gospel have in the way that you love your wife, the way that you care for your children, the way that you treat your friends? If you're afraid the answer is not much, it should. It's not just a word. It's your calling. It's your life if you've given it to Jesus. If you haven't... If you haven't given your life to Jesus, that's a whole nother set of warnings. Jesus said that if those who seek to hold and save and keep their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake will keep it. That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? But neither does power and weakness. But that's what God does. He, he, he makes the possible out of the impossible. And God becoming man to rescue humanity from our autonomous response to created conditions through which we deny God's position and power and person. 
The reason power by force is, is our default mode as humans, it's because that's what we've chosen. We take life into our own hands. We want to be the determinants of what's right and what's wrong. The problem is, is that only leads to chaos and destruction. But the good news, the good news is that Jesus willingly came and entered into our destruction. And he offers us hope of a way out. Will you follow? Will you embrace the gospel? Christians, will, will we embrace daily gospel-centered lives? In the midst of humanity's brokenness and our own weaknesses, we are not without hope because the power, true power, God's power, is perfected in weakness. But what do we do with that? How do we respond to this different way of viewing power? We again look to Paul as an example to glory, to be content, to take mental pleasure in the difficulties because success speaks for itself, but contentment in being less impressive speaks for Christ. Again, success speaks for itself, but contentment in being less impressive speaks for Christ. For all of this, Paul said and expects those who read his letter, which includes us, to boast gladly in weaknesses, to be content in, to glory in, to delight and be pleased with insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. Why? For the sake of Christ. So that the power that is made perfect, the power that comes into its own in the midst of our brokenness will set up camp in Paul's heart and Paul's ministry and Paul's life. And so that God's power will reside in our hearts and our lives. And we will know what it means to be comforted through discomfort, ministered through misery, consoled through chaos. And in turn, we offer the same hope to others. We often misconstrue blessings as God's reward and difficulties as God's punishment. However, it's grace that runs through it all. I'm not saying that we romanticize suffering by throwing up hashtag persecuted everywhere, but we long for suffering to be done and over. The point is, it's not. And there are those in this world who are desperately looking for and needing the hope that we have, the hope that death and disease will come to an end. If we can stop telling people how blessed we are because of our faith and show people the hope of Christ amid our suffering, they will see a power that this world cannot offer them. A transformative power that in weakness is exactly a story that Nick Vujicic shares. He was born without arms and legs in Australia in 1982. 
At eight years old, he tried to drown himself in the bathtub. He shares how he was angry with God, feeling forgotten in God's plan. But at the age of 14, he came across a passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus spoke of a man who was born blind, but no one knew why. Nick's heart pricked with hope and expectation. Hope in finding someone similar to him impacted by brokenness. An expectation that Jesus would be able to work through him also, even through his brokenness. Nick shares how in prayer to God, he felt God ask him, Do you trust me even if I don't heal you? And Nick says, yes, even if. God moves better through our weaknesses than he does our strengths. This is so countercultural, it hurts. I can hear your arguments playing over and over in my mind. So what? Don't try? Don't do something that we're good at? No, that's not what this Paul is saying. It's not what this Paul was saying. In fact, that line of thinking, it begins to reveal a bit of our own heart in the matter. It reveals where our treasure is. If I'm good at something and I do good at it, people will recognize my strengths and know what I have to offer. But if I'm bad at something and it still works, people will think I got lucky. I don't want people thinking I got lucky. I want people to know me. I want people to understand me. I want, I want comfort. Lord, help me see the thorn. It's better people understand and know you. It's better people see your power at work through my weakness. For the sake of Christ then, when, when we share our stories... When we talk with our spouses about our day, when we explain things in the world to our children, when we collaborate at work, may it all be done for the sake of Christ. Let us keep a priority of brokenness so that in the end, it's Christ as seen as the one with power. Paul has warned us about an inflated self-view. He has given us the hope of the gospel's paradoxical view of power and weakness. And he's exemplified for us how, are we, how we are to understand and relate to each of the life circumstances. But if you still don't think boldness in the Christian's life necessitates a measure of force, or if you still think, excuse me, you still think Boldness in the Christian life necessitates a measure of force. Then I'd like you to ponder these remaining thoughts. I'm going to give my eyes a break and tell Brandon and the worship team to go ahead and come on up. But boasting about weakness, it runs contrary to the human psyche, which prefers to emphasize strength. And this is because we've been trying to prove that we didn't make a mistake when we chose the wrong fruit in the garden. 
We desire to determine what's right and what's wrong, but when reality doesn't line up, we try to blame someone or something else. And so the weaknesses, the frailty, the brokenness, it's all making us come to grips with reality in which we are not masters of our own fate. Look at the push to modify genetics. That if we can control what we are biologically, we can finally control what it means to be human. Yet Jesus has already shown us what we are to be. My power is made perfect in weakness. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though being the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself, emptied himself, nothing. By taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us dare to value brokenness. Harvest Decatur, let us transform our view of boldness to include a priority of brokenness. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Pray with me, Lord Jesus. You are and forever will be God. You are high and lifted up. There is no name above your name. You are the I am. We thank you and we praise you and we are eternally grateful for you coming and making the way. We desire to honor you with our lives. We desire to incorporate into us the truth of your word And we ask by your spirit, help us to do so. Help love reign in this church and from this church into the community 
and through all of your believers in Decatur. And so that your presence and your hope and your truth and the gospel of your good news, Lord Jesus, can be shared, can be recognized, can be seen. God, I pray these things. I want to see these things. And Lord, in humble submission, we want to be a part of these things. And thank you for your mercy. Thank you for showing us that not only is it okay to be broken, but that you move through it in power and promise. We trust in you in all things, Lord Jesus. Amen.